Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be uh, looking at that today. Um, and like he said, he told me on Thursday that I would only have 30 minutes. So as you can imagine, I'd already finished a lot of my sermon prep before then, so I had to then condense. But it's okay, and you know, that's, that's what I'm, one of the things I'm learning to do. But, uh, so again, we're going to be in Titus 1, verses 5 through 14. That's another thing. If you notice in your bulletins, it probably says 5 through 16. That was a change we made. Made that last minute. It's okay. We'll get those verses next week. Um, so I do want to thank you for this opportunity to preach, and I really hope that you will be able to learn with me. Um, let's pray for our time together. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your word. I pray that as I preach, you would allow me to be clear and understandable allow this congregation to understand what I have to say, help them to learn well, help me to preach well. I pray that as we study your word, as we spend time looking, trying to understand, you would reveal yourself to us, help us to learn. Bless our time together and help us all draw closer to you. Amen. So let's read from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would learn well as we study it. pray all this in your name. Amen. Five or six years ago, two of my brothers, who will remain nameless, and two friends of ours went on a hike up Palomar Mountain. Started early in the morning, we drove around to the Temecula side, partway up the mountain, and we had plans for a great day hike, hike up to the summit, spend a little bit of time there eating lunch, and then a hike down. We had directions from a very reputable website, no way that could go wrong, and as we found out later, we had a GPS in the car. <laughs> so we started hiking, it was going great. We got to the summit right around 1 o'clock, spent about an hour up there eating lunch, goofing off, having fun, and then we started heading down. And our instructions told us to look for a signpost. We found the sign, but it had been burned in the wildfires on Palomar Mountain two years earlier. So we didn't know exactly where to go, but we made a guess and started going. Two hours, ten miles later, we found out that it was the wrong way. But we were already there ten miles the wrong direction. So at that point, 
we kind of figured out where we were, figured out that it was going to get dark before we could make it back to the car, and we decided we had to settle in. It was a cold night, but we made it through, and the next morning we made it out. Um, and so we were counting on that signpost for instructions, but as it turned out, we couldn't rely on it. And then at the same time, we had a GPS in the car, and we could have relied on the GPS, and that would have given us the correct instructions. We lost our bearings because we didn't have something that was worth counting on for our bearings. And so in today's passage, Paul writes to Titus to say, to give him instructions for how to deal with people who've lost their bearings, but then also to say, you know, there are some people who have lost their bearings, and you need to work to help them gain their bearings. And this is really, really important stuff, good stuff that's really good for us to hear as a church. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with it because when you start reading the passage, you see some formal terms, like some formal titles, elder, overseer. And so it can be really easy to check out and say, ah, that doesn't really apply to me. But I want you all to hear me when I say this. The person that makes a good elder, the person that makes a good overseer, is the person who is a mature Christian, who is growing in their faith. And so these are instructions that apply to every single person in this room. And I want, I want you guys all to hear that. And so um, as we dig into this list of what makes a good elder and a good overseer, and then the reverse, like, what, like the characteristics of a false teacher, I want you to listen carefully so that you can be instructed in what makes a good, mature Christian. So let's just go ahead and work through the text. You see in verse 5, I touched on it a little bit last week, if you remember that. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so, if I can get the map, please. We see, first off, this book, this whole book is set in Crete. Can I get my map? Thank you. Um, see the island of Crete right there? So it's just south of all this stuff. Um, and you see, here's Jerusalem, just to orient you. And then over here, um, we've got Rome, right up here at the corner. And so Crete is an island that's just kind of right in the middle of everything. It was a, there are a lot of trade cities in, on the island of Crete. Um, and it's, it's mentioned frequently in Greek mythology. So we know there were, that was a Greek city, or a Greek island, and there were a lot of Greeks living on the island. But we also know that there was a population of Jews on Crete. You can go back to the, the versus slide. And uh, you don't have to flip there, but if you, if you want to, you can see in Acts 2.11 that at the Feast of Pentecost, there were Cretans there, which means that these were Jewish people who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So we know that there was a Greek population. We also know that there was a Jewish population. And then if you look at the passage for today in Titus, you see verse 10. He's talking about false teachers. It says there are those of the circumcision referring to Jews. And you see in verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths. We know that there were Jews on the island of Crete. That becomes really important. Um, I will come back to that. And so we learned last week that Paul knew the church at Crete. He knew Titus really well and had a very good relationship with him. And so that's a big part of why he wrote this book. Um, and we see here in verse 5, two things. If you see, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, so that, that's really important. Anytime you see the words so that in the Bible, stop, pay attention. This is what's coming up. So that, one, you would set in order what remains, and two, you would appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so the text flows directly into the second item, 
as you see, the qualifications for elders. But I want to start with the first item, setting in order what remains, explain what that's referring to, and we see the answer to that starting in verse 10. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 14 and kind of explain what's going on here. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So, Paul tells Titus to set in order what remains. A huge part of what he's referring to is talking to these false teachers, rebuking and correcting them. And we see that in verse 11 that they're upsetting whole families, they're teaching things that, that they shouldn't for sordid gain. But we don't really know exactly what those things are. But we do have a big clue at the end of verse 10 and then again the beginning of verse 14. I said I'd come back to this. this is the, he's talking about Jewish myths and he's talking about those of the circumcision. So to kind of paint this picture a little bit more, we learned some about it last week when we looked at Acts 15. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles um, towards the front of the Bible to Acts 15. We're going to spend a minute or two there just discussing what... What is he even talking about? What is the circumcision? What are these Jewish myths? That's Acts 15. And so the setting here, I mentioned it last week. This is Paul has traveled to Jerusalem for this council. It's a bunch of Jews and Christian Jews, Jews who are Christians, Gentiles who are Christians, coming together and saying, okay, how do we deal, how do we work with Gentiles in the church? because for many years it had been just Jewish Christians. And so this council met to understand what Jesus said, to understand what the scriptures said. They were trying to work through this and make a clear decision. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, he's referring to Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And so we learned something about this last week, about how Paul was very emphatic that the Gentile Christians did not need to be circumcised to come to Christ, to be saved. Here we see Peter and the entire council saying the same thing. They say, they make it clear that putting the burden of the Jewish law upon Gentile Christians was not appropriate, and they make it clear that Jews and Gentiles can both be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see in verse 11. They did make a statement about what it is appropriate for Gentile Christians to do, 
which you can see if you jump down a few verses to verse 20, Acts 15:20, says, But we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Just four items that they needed to avoid. And we see the point here is that they needed to defer to their Jewish brothers and sisters. They needed to say, these are things that you cannot do and these are things that we will choose not to do to avoid causing problems. And there's a really important point there that sometimes even if you can do something, it's appropriate not to. To say, this is something that could cause a brother or a sister to stumble. This is something that could cause an issue. So I'm going to choose not to do it. And so, again, just to stop for a minute to talk about why this council reached the conclusion that they did, as Peter said in verse 10, the Jews were never able to bear the weight of obeying the law. That's a really important statement because we see in Galatians 3.24, you don't have to turn there, that the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor, your Bible might say. Um, It's designed not to be a set of rules and guidelines that you obey to achieve righteousness with God. It's designed to show the depth of our own sinfulness. And so the Christians here at this council are saying, it's a schoolmaster. It's designed to show us our sinfulness, not to be the way we get to heaven. And so Paul makes it clear that Gentile believers were not required to be circumcised. You can turn back to Titus now. They're not to be circumcised. They don't have to worry about that. But they do have to be considered of those who had other convictions. And that's why we see these things that the Jerusalem Council decided. That's why we see here in this passage, he's saying, some of those of the circumcision, these are those false teachers. These are the people who are saying, no, the, Jew, they, saying the Gentiles need to be circumcised. Paul is saying, no, no, that's not true. And these are the Jewish myths that he's referring to, the myths that they need to be circumcised to be saved. Another thing we see, and it's a really important distinction, not all the false teachers were Jewish. Um, some of them were teaching for sordid gain in ver- the end of verse 11. If you remember when I read earlier, he said, overseers must not be fond of sordid gain. There's an important contrast between the two, which I'm going to come back to. Basically, Paul is establishing a tension between overseers on the one hand and false teachers on the other hand. But for right now, talking about false teachers, Paul isn't done speaking against them. He wants to really drive home the fact that they are not people to be trusted. That they are, And he goes on to quote someone that they would have considered a prophet. This would be like quoting, I don't know, quoting Oprah to make a point about Americans. Um, he says, one of their own, a prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says, this is true. He's agreeing with that statement. And I want you to see like how funny this is. He's saying, you guys, your own prophets say that you are all these things. And you are. But then what's the point? He wants Titus and the overseers that Titus appoints to reprove them severely. Here we get another important, so that. Two things. So that they may be sound in the faith and so that they may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Look at verse 13. Who does he want reproved? It's not entirely clear from the text who he's referring to, but insider information. 
when you read it in Greek, it's really, really, really clear. He's talking about the Cretans in general. It's not just the false teachers who he's talking to at this point. He's saying he wants all the Cretans refuted and rebuked with the truth. And so he's definitely including the false teachers within that category, but he's also saying to all of the Cretans, they need to be rebuked. They need to be restored so they may be sound in the faith. And another important point within this is that he wants even the false teachers to be restored so they may be sound in the faith. He wants the false teachers to be reproved so that they may join the church and worship Christ. And we can certainly see parallels to this in our day-to-day life where we can think of false teachers, people who have said harmful things against the church. But according to this passage, we should desire that they be reproved so that they can return, so that they may be sound in the faith. So now that I've kind of gone through Paul's reason for saying so much about false teachers, I want to shift gears and look at what he says about church leaders. So if you notice in, in verse 5, he says he has two different, two different titles. He says, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. But then jump down two verses and he says, overseer. What's going on with that? He's got two different terms here, two different like, formal titles. That's kind of confusing. But... It's actually fairly simple. Um, it's an overseer, an elder is what we would refer to today as a pastor. It's just different titles for them, and those titles emphasize different roles and responsibilities. So an elder, an overseer, those are different names for the same person, different hats that the same person would wear. Um, but like I said earlier, the big thing to take away from this is that the kind of person who makes a good elder, the kind of person who makes a good overseer, is a mature Christian. So as I read through this, this passage now, I'm going to read a couple of verses. I want you to think about this as these are the requirements for being a faithful and mature Christian. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we see two lists here. There's a positive list of things that a faithful Christian and an overseer must be, and then there's a negative list of things that they must not be. I don't have a lot of time to work through this, um, thanks to Andre and, and uh, Chris and Gunnar, but um, I do want to touch on a couple of these things and um, kind of explain what some of these are. So first, like the idea of being above reproach. Some of your Bibles might say blameless. Um, this is a really important one. The idea here is that even if someone was to accuse you of something terrible, anyone who knew you would laugh because it would just be so ridiculous, so absurd that you could have even possibly done that. Um, And it's not a character trait that you can develop overnight. You can't become blameless overnight. That's something that comes after a life of faithful and dedicated and consistent actions. And that results in everyone knowing what kind of behavior you'll exhibit. 
another thing, um, as you read through the list, the husband of one wife. Literally, this refers to a one-woman man. And I recognize that this is something that in today's culture is, um, that's, that's hard. There's a lot of pain and sorrow that can come with that. Um, but Gunnar gave me permission to blame him for the time that I don't have to go into it. So I'm going to leave that on him for later. Um, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Here to, what's dissipation? I had to do, I had to go look this up. Um, dissipation is like the idea of uh, wasteful or frivolous living. Someone who just doesn't care about saving, doesn't care about being a good steward. And so then going down the list um, in verse 7, it must be above reproach. Talked about that. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. This is when Gunnar asked me, is this just someone who loves pugs? Well, <laughs> no. Um, other translations will use the word like a striker or someone who beats other people. Being pugnacious just is like an, someone who's easy to aggravate, someone who will hit other people easily. It's not something you want. Again, not fond of sordid gain. Some translations will say greedy. It's not greedy. Um, sordid gain refers especially to like a monetary greediness, like not necessarily caring where your money came from, just wanting the money. And so this is the exact opposite of what Paul says about the false teachers. Like I said earlier, he's building this tension between the false teachers on the one hand and what he wants a mature Christian and an overseer to be. So he goes on with this list in verse 8. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Some translations will t translate that as temperate, which I really I like that translation. So in short, what Paul is saying here is that people who live their lives properly are people who are consumed with pursuing God, and people who meet these qualifications are people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. And the final step in this, in being a mature Christian, we see in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The overseer must hold fast. And this is what Paul's talking about. You hold fast to the teaching, the Bible, which lets you keep your bearings. Remember in my story at the beginning, we were holding fast to that signpost to get us to directions. That signpost was not worthy of us relying on it. The GPS was, but we didn't have the GPS with us. The signpost failed us, but we know that the word of God will never fail us. We know that it is faithful. It will never change. It is our authority. Something that I remember from when I was growing up in this church, and I've heard Gunnar say this many times, is that we subject ourselves to the word. This is part of why we study straight through a book. We, we walk through it. Um, you know, I don't, we don't shy away from the hard passages. We go through them. We learn. We are humble. We subject ourselves to the word. And I think it's really cool that I get to preach today when we have two of our missionaries visiting. And these are, these are men who are doing this in, in Italy and in Romania and... Um, Anytime you go to look for a church, if you ever have to move away or if you're ever even traveling and you want a church to visit, this is the kind of thing you want to look for in a church, a church that subjects themselves to the word of God because it is what gives us our bearings. It is what guides us. 
And so to kind of sum up this section, whether or not God has called you personally to be an overseer or a church leader, he has called you to mature and to grow as a Christian. And I, I submit to you that you need to be growing in this way. You need to be maturing. This is not a list just for, old, for elders, for overseers. This is a list of things that you can learn, you can grow in. And I want to make sure that I'm being humble in this because I definitely, as I'm standing before you today, I desire the position of an oversight. I desire to serve a church as a pastor. And I can't in any way say that I have everything here figured out. I don't. But by the grace of God, I am maturing in my faith. I am growing. I am learning. I submit myself to the authority of the word. And I do want you all to know I'm not in any way above you. I'm not in any way better than you. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and God has allowed me and called me to teach. Um, and so, again, I want you to see this passage. I want you to understand that this is the call to be a mature Christian. He has not called every Christian to be an overseer, but he has called every Christian to grow and to be mature. So I ask you to read this list of qualities as things to aspire toward, things to grow in. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the people of Valley Baptist Church, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come here and to teach. We recognize that your word is the authority for our lives because it comes from you. And we pray that you will continually allow us to read and understand it faithfully so that we can continually grow in the truth and be mature Christians. I do pray that you would lead each person in this room to desire this deeper and fuller relationship with you as they grow, as they mature. I pray that you continue to work in us as we worship you through singing and then as we go throughout our days. And I pray that we continue to worship you. Allow us to follow you. Allow us to serve you. I pray all this in your name.